Today's reading is from Acts chapter 4, verse 1 through 31. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the corner, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this from spreading any further, among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in his name. They, then they called them in again, and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them, because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, You made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The, king of the, the kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. 
They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, the counterattack. Well, so far in Acts, we have seen that Jesus ascended to heaven and the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, has descended from heaven to earth. And the church has been able to get off to a most amazing start. Quantitatively, there were the 120 and then 3,000. And then today in chapter 4, it begins with news of another 5,000 who were added to their number. And then qualitatively, we read that they shared their lives. They looked after each other. They shared the gospel and they enjoyed what chapter 247 observed, the favour of all the people. What an amazing start. And then last week, in chapter 3, we saw an amazing miracle, an instant, complete, public healing of a man who for 40 years from birth had been a congenital cripple. A miracle recognised as such by all who saw it, even by these Sadducees who had opposed Jesus and now opposed the the apostles. Even they, in 4.16, say, everyone in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. What they couldn't do, of course, is accept the consequences of what happened. So using this uh, extraordinary event, Peter took the opportunity to explain the significance of the miracle. And what was that? Well, it was simply that Jesus was continuing to do from heaven what he had done on earth. While he was on earth, the apostles had been Jesus' witnesses. Now in heaven, the apostles become Jesus' agents. It's through them that he does this. And in doing so, and so persuasively, that their hearers, mostly Jews, all fiercely monotheistic, were concluding that Jesus, that in Jesus, God had actually visited this planet. But now in chapter 4, there is a kickback. Here is the counterattack. The gospel, as it were, had advanced into enemy territory. And within just a couple of days, over 8,000 were added to the people of God and the new Christian community grows. Now, do you find that counter-attack surprising? In many parts of the world, becoming a Christian could diminish your chances of marriage, as the community, Christian community in some parts is incredibly small. And you'd know that your choice was limited to amongst fellow believers. 
You might be highly intelligent, but your prospects of accessing the best level of education in your country may be denied you simply because you're a Christian and the authorities don't want you to be able to acquire a significant place in that society. The same could be true of employment opportunities. And in fact, being a Christian can in some places cost you your life. Take Myanmar, previously called Burma. The Burmese, who are just one of the ethnic groups which go to make up the country, they are Buddhists and they run the show. They, as you know, have been carrying out ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya, who are Muslims and live in the west of the country. They've killed many and have driven the rest into Bangladesh. But they've been doing similar acts of genocide, extrajudicial killing, rape and the destruction of communities among the predominantly uh, hill people who live on the borders with Thailand, the Karen and the Chin minorities. Minorities which have a significant and growing percentage of Christians. The Karen have 20% Christian. The Chin, in 1965, 35% of them were Christians. In 2010, it had become 90% of them Christian. And such persecution has been going on since 1949. Now, why is this? Why from time to time and from place to place is there opposition to Christians and Christianity? Well, the simple reason is that Christianity talks. The world, generally speaking, does not like religion that talks. It favours religion that is content to be hidden away in secrecy and in the secret recesses of an individual's private life so that it poses no threat to the prevailing mood. Christianity, though, cannot be hidden away. It has a life-changing message and it offers eternal life. So the first thing you remember that the Holy Spirit did on the day of Pentecost was to get them talking, getting their tongues wagging, 120 started speaking, 3,000 understood and embraced both the Christian explanation to life, our worldview, but also the person of Christ who lies above it. Then a miracle is done in public and the apostles explain the significance and this time 5,000 get it and turn to follow Christ. So that's 8,120 in just a couple of days. Now the opposition begins. It wants the apostles and these new believers in Christ to shut up. Well, let's make sure we're clear about the sequence of events, and then we'll just use two questions to unpack the passage for our benefit today. You'll see it on the printed outline. There is the arrest of Peter and John in the first seven verses. Peter is then on trial and he puts forward his defence, verses 8 to 12. 
in 13 to 17, the council make their decision. Peter and John then respond in 18 to 22, and then they are released and return to the fellowship of believers, 23 to 31. Now I'd like us to approach this passage by using it to answer two simple questions. The first question, why the opposition? And the second question, what made them so resolute in the face of it? So why the opposition? Well, first of all, A on your outline sheet. There was an element of social prejudice. The opposition was led by the Sadducees, the aristocratic religious group who dominated the Jewish ruling council and Judaism in the first century. The high priest was a Sadducee, the captain of the temple guard was a Sadducee, and these were the two most important officers of the council. Later, in Acts 4.13, they refer to these Galileans as unschooled, ordinary men. That's a put-down. Plebs, the Romans might have uh, said, or ignorant peasants, some medieval monarch might have uttered. Now, have you ever had people judge you by your accent? Which is what's happening here. I remember a long time ago being invited to a gathering of rather well-to-do young clergymen. One of those chaps, and they were all chaps, was the son-in-law of a baronet. And he asked me where I was from. Basingstoke, I said. Oh, he said, do you know so-and-so? Well, so-and-so happened to be a good friend of mine and I think he'd been at school with this fellow. Oh yes, I said, but he's in the Hampshire Highlands. I'm just down in the town. I'd last about three weeks where he is. I'm much better suited to downtown Basingstoke. Oh, I can tell that, was the assured assessment after 30 seconds acquaintance. Now these apostles were pretty ordinary and they were from up north and were detectable by their accents. The second reason was moral. Have you noticed a refrain in the early chapters of Acts? Acts 2.23 You handed him over, you killed him, but God raised him from the dead. Or 3.13 You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead and we are witnesses of this. The refrain is repeated in other chapters. You killed him, God raised him, and we are witnesses. You see, they had so obviously got their assessment of Jesus wrong. But as they did not want to admit it, they had to kick back against the accusers. The third reason was that their preconceived ideas got in the way of their discovering the truth. Being Sadducees, they rejected all but the first five books of the Bible. Their Bible stopped at the end of Deuteronomy, in the days of Moses. Well, actually, it stops in the chapter where he dies. So they rejected the notion of resurrection, as it was not in their truncated version of the Bible. 
And in fact, they thought that the Maccabean revolt in the middle of the second century BC marked the arrival of the Messianic age. So they were not looking for a Messiah at all. He was not on their radar, nor any resurrection. Now, how many people do you know, or maybe you do, have a closed mind? People who are not prepared to acknowledge what is rather obvious, that we are limited in our knowledge. And that being the case, an open mind to possible discoveries would be by far the smartest outlook to have. A closed mind, after all, is like a closed parachute. Fatal. But an open mind may lead you to a discovery that in fact saves your life. The fourth reason was political. The Sadducees were top dogs in the religious pack of the first century Judaism. And they wanted to hang on to their status. Not recognising any book beyond Deuteronomy meant they were of course deaf to the warnings of compromise and corruption in their dealings with the authorities. And they colluded with the Romans and the Herodians who ran the place in order to retain their own position of wealth, power and influence. Now Jesus in his lifetime on earth had been very popular with the people, with the masses, even if they quite understandably hadn't fully grasped at the time all that he was up to. Now, dead, he is still a threat. 120 people speaking languages they had never learned and 3,000 people are converted. One man horribly deformed from birth, instantly and completely restored to normality before their very eyes. And 5,000 more embrace Jesus Christ as God. Astonishing, but from the Sadducees' perspective, worrying. A threat to their position. They needed to be silenced. Chapter 4, 17. To stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in his, that's Jesus' name. And then fifthly and lastly... Uh, what really got them so opposed to Christ and his Christians was their absolutist position. Verse 12 of chapter 4. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So salvation is a necessity, There's no eternal life without it and Jesus is said to be the only one who can deliver it. That is what Peter is saying by this statement here. Now maybe, like Mahatma Gandhi, you too find this just a bit too much on first hearing. Gandhi said, It is impossible for me to believe that I could go to heaven or attain salvation only by becoming a Christian. 
It was more than I could believe that Jesus was the only incarnate Son of God and that only he who believes in him would have everlasting life. Now if, of course, Peter and John had kept their views to themselves, no one would have minded. If they had just talked about their views as one possibility among many, they would have been tolerated. But as they claim their view of Jesus as absolute truth, then whether it was in the pluralism of the first century or the 21st century, they are going to get into trouble. You see, you can say Jesus is a way to God, but to claim that he is the way to God is just not acceptable. And yet, this is what the apostles claim. Peter does so here. Paul does it elsewhere in his first letter to Timothy, chapter 2, verse 5, where he writes, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And they say so because they are following Jesus, who said in John 14, No one comes to the Father except by me. Now, why did they insist on it? Well, the short answer is, given the problem, Jesus is the only solution. Given the problem, Jesus is the only solution. Let me explain. All religions recognise that human beings are estranged from God, however God is perceived and defined. Somehow there is distance between us and him. Now, Christianity is very specific as to what the problem and the solution are. So first, the problem. Human beings have not acknowledged God as their rightful ruler of their lives. And so they do things wrong and they cause others to suffer. God, being a God of justice, must therefore punish all those who do so much wrong and cause so much suffering. But the Christian God is also a God of love and mercy who longs to exercise mercy and to bring into relationship with him those who have gone astray. But it's not that easy. He cannot just whitewash everything away. He can't wave a magic wand. He can't airbrush it out. So what's the solution? Well, he exercises justice and he exercises mercy. But how can he do both? Well, by himself taking our place and being on the receiving end of justice by being punished for our wrongdoing. To do that, he must become one of us to live a perfect life and experience the punishment which is separation from God the Father. And he, in Jesus, experienced that by being separated from God the Father when he suffered on the cross. It was quite literally hell. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus cried out. Now, in order for that to work, the Saviour must be human, 
but he must be a perfect human. Since none exists, God must take up human form. Only the divine man can both represent us by being human and an effective substitute for us by being perfect, which requires he be divine. And only one person fits the bill, Jesus Christ. Of course, Gandhi would ask, and we might well ask too, if Jesus is the only way of salvation, then what do we make of other religions? It's a good question, a fair question. And the answer is, well, we affirm what is true in them and seek to correct what is not. It's not surprising that they contain a mixture of truth and error. Truth, because they are a product of human beings made in the image of God, albeit a marred image. You see, they would be able to pick up through creation and conscience the fact that God exists, although they'd be pretty hazy concerning what God is like. And they would pick up a sense of right and wrong, albeit in a rather ill-informed sense. So it's not surprising that some religions pick up that God is the all-powerful creator. Others make some pretty correct and shrewd observations about life. Confucius, for example, 500 years before Christ, came up with the golden rule, do unto others what you would have them do to you, mirroring exactly what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verse 12. And this is not surprising, since God put eternity in the hearts of men, the writer of Ecclesiastes puts it. Throughout the world, men and women are not satisfied with material things alone. We sense there is more, but we come up with vastly different and contradictory ideas. So, take some ideas about God. Some religions don't actually believe in God, Buddhism being a case in point. Hinduism thinks there are millions of gods. Islam insists there is only one God who is unknowable. Judaism describes his character in great detail. What take do they have on salvation? Well, Hinduism believes that if you've done well in this life, better than the previous life, then you move up the class system the next time round. Of course, if you don't, you go down. Islam looks to paradise, where you will, if you're a man, be waited on by dark-haired virgins. Buddhism thinks it's best to be extinguished, to cease to be at all. Now how to attain salvation is where they all have something in common. They each believe in their various ways that if you do X, Y and Z, you get to earn salvation. But of course they can never be sure they have earned enough to acquire it. Well Christianity says no, We can't earn it. Only if we are perfect 
would we have the right to go to heaven? And since no one is or ever has been except Jesus, we have to be given it. And if we respond to Jesus in the way prescribed through repentance, that means turning to him and trusting him, we can be sure he will keep his word and we will be there. Now this isn't as arrogant, narrow-minded or as illiberal as someone might initially think. C.S. Lewis is of great help here. He writes, If you are a Christian, you do not have to believe that all other religions are simply wrong all through. If you are an atheist, you do have to believe that the main point in all religions of the world is simply one huge mistake. If you are a Christian, you are free to think that all those religions, even the oddest ones, contain at least some hint of truth. When I was an atheist, he says, I had to try and persuade myself that most of the human race have always been wrong about the questions that matter to them most. When I became a Christian, I was able to take a more liberal view. But of course, being a Christian does mean thinking that where Christianity differs from other religions, Christianity is right and they are wrong. As in arithmetic, there is only one right answer to a sum and all other answers are wrong. Some wrong answers are, though, much nearer to being right than others. You see, once someone sees what the problem is, it is easy to understand what God's solution is. There is only one man, the perfect divine human being, God himself in human form, who can fit the bill. Fit the bill for us, all human beings, including Christians, note. You see, there is a note of humility required to convey this message. Notice no other name by which we must be saved. We don't come from some position of superiority as Christians, since we were, of course, once in the same sinking ship in need of rescue. And this is actually the answer also to the second question that we started with. What gave them so much courage? What made them so resolute in the face of this opposition? Yep, they knew that it was the only solution to our biggest problem. And of course, in support of that, they had seen changed lives, including their own. They'd seen the risen Christ and they knew the power of the Holy Spirit working in them. If they did their bit, God turned up and through them did his. But the underlying reason is that they knew the sovereign Lord. The despotes was in charge. This is from where we get the word despot, meaning a ruler of unchallengeable power. Of course, our God is a benevolent despot, and not a malevolent one. And that is how they prayed when they were released. They gathered together, 
They shared what had happened, verse 23. They prayed to their sovereign Lord. They recognised that he is the creator, verse 24. You made the heaven and the earth. He is the revealer. Without him revealing, we would know very little. He says, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant David. And he is the God of history, verse 27. Herod, Pilate, Gentiles and Jews had united in a conspiracy to be rid of Jesus. And yet they were merely of their own volition, simply deciding what God had already decided would happen. So they had in focus the God who made, who spoke, who decided. And so with their vision clarified, they humbled themselves in prayer. Verse 29. Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. They didn't pray to annihilate the opposition, nor did they pray that the threats might just be words rather than actions. They asked that God would simply consider their prayers. They knew God was in charge. His decision would be the best, whether they carried on with their mission or whether they became martyrs. They were free from all fear. People who really believe in a sovereign God like they did are fearless and intimidated by nobody. Whatever the opposition, they cannot be frightened. John Chrysostom, one of the greats of early Christian history, when he was on trial for his life, the emperor said, we will banish you. And Chrysostom is reputed to have replied, you cannot banish me, for the whole world is my father's home. Well then, we will execute you, said the emperor. You cannot, he replied. My life is hid with Christ. Well then, we will dispossess you of your estate. You cannot, he said. I have not got any. All my treasure is in heaven. Well then, we will put you in solitary confinement, said the emperor. Well, you cannot. I have a divine friend from whom you can never separate me. I defy you. There is nothing you can do to hurt me. Now oh, that is courage. Courage from a man convinced that Jesus is the only solution to the problem and that the sovereign Lord is in charge of everything. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we admire the courage and the conviction of the early apostles and the early church. And we pray that like them we might clearly understand the human problem and our default estrangement from you. And may we also understand how you managed to provide a solution to that problem. And how the only person who was both human and divine and perfect, able to represent us and able to take our place, was in fact Jesus Christ, who visited us 2,000 years ago. 
And given that we can read and see the testimony of eyewitnesses who record that these events took place, his life, death, resurrection, ascension, coming of his spirit, these miracles performed to attest what was being said and done. We pray that we too might surrender to your sovereignty and live lives now and forever, securely trusting in you, whatever might come our way in life, because we know our eternal destiny is secure. Amen.